CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're talking about some pretty scary individuals. I mean, ones that I don't feel comfortable approaching, the family doesn't feel comfortable approaching. Whatever happened to Shelly, it scared a lot of people. Scared enough that it's even hard to get people to talk on the podcast because they are so scared. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to spreading awareness about issues that usually get swept under the rug. This episode is brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. By now, you know the story of Shelley DeRoche's life, the questions surrounding her disappearance, and you've heard about the awareness this podcast series has raised around not just Shelley, but the bigger issues like a failing foster care system and keeping sex workers safe. Shelley is the third high-risk individual to go missing from London, Ontario in the last decade. Today, in Part 5 of Finding Shelley DeRoche... We'll look closer at the system that failed Shelley and find out if things are improving, getting worse, or staying the same. We'll also tell you about a surprising response we got when reaching out to some organizations in London. Plus, a new development. Carla speaks with private investigator Chris Williams of Canadian Private Investigation Services. We'll be looking into some persons of interest around Shelley's case. This is Stand Up Speak Up's Finding Shelley DeRoche, Part 5. We know that Shelly ended up in the foster care system early in her life. And maybe if the system was better, Shelly would have had a better life. Maybe she'd still be here today. Carla speaks now with Jane Kovarikova, an expert in child and youth welfare. She's a PhD candidate in the political science department at Western University in London, has done research on foster care and youth outcomes for government, and now sits on the board of directors for a child welfare agency. Jane was a foster child herself from the age of six, moving out on her own at 16 and then aging out of the system at 21. Here are her thoughts on what impact the foster care system had on Shelley's life early on. Obviously, I think her story is a tragedy, but at the same time, it's not entirely surprising given the way that foster youth are sort of set up for their future. The research that I did was I essentially did a massive literature, academic literature review across jurisdictions, including different provinces in Canada, USA, the different states, UK and Australia. And I just found that the life trajectories for foster youth tend to be bleak and it's consistent across time. The last 40 years, there haven't been improvements in how foster youth fare after they age out of the system. What do you think the chances are that we're going to get this right, that the system's actually going to make enough changes to put this on the right track. So I actually think there's a huge opportunity to get it right. I think the main problem that my research uncovered was that we currently don't have an evidence-based system or an outcomes-driven system. So what I mean by that is that in Ontario, the government has never systematically measured or tracked what happens to youth after they age out of their care. So the question then becomes, how do you know what you've been implementing before they aged out has worked? 
right? And I believe all the answers, the solutions to system reform are in that research that hasn't been done here. Other jurisdictions have started to do it, and that's what my report is based on. But here, that's one gap that is missing. And I think the solutions will become self-evident once you start looking at the nuances of how youth fare. Okay, so you know you, you listened to Shelley's story and yes. uh, how her childhood began. So what do you think could have been done better? Where did the system fail her? So I think to answer that, it will kind of be in two parts. So in the first part is first we have to look at sort of what happens, like what part of her story is statistically probable, let's say. And many foster youth who age out of care have low academic achievement. In Ontario, 56% drop out of high school. Just a few weeks ago, Kathleen Wynne announced that we have like record high high school graduation rates, like almost 90%. But for the aging out population of foster care, it's 56% and only 44% finish. So I know in the first episode, you mentioned that Shelley had dropped out of school. I think her friend said that in a grade nine. And that is directly connected to earnings, right? And then that's the next finding. So most foster youth after they age out are unemployed or underemployed. The majority live in outright poverty. So I wouldn't be surprised if that sort of shed some light as to finding alternative ways to find money. I know that her friend mentioned, like, why would you allow someone to traffic you and One of the things was, well, we need food, we need money, we need security, we need safety. And those are some things you can get from employment. But if you haven't achieved any academic credentials, that's difficult. And now one of the findings was that foster youth are four times more likely to engage in transactional sex. If they've been raped, that number goes up even more. So I feel like that was two major disadvantages for Shelley. I don't know about her experiences with homelessness, but many foster youth who age out, 10 to 30%, actually, most studies say, experience some kind of homelessness. And so on it goes, then criminal justice system involvement, early pregnancy, mental health becomes an issue. I know some of her friends mentioned that she maybe had some depression or something, or definitely substance abuse. Forced sex is actually correlated directly with those two things. Furthermore, foster youth who age out of the system have double the rates of post-traumatic stress disorder than war veterans. So there's a lot there in terms of how youth life trajectories will materialize. And so in terms of what goes wrong and how the system could have maybe prevented some of this, is there are risk factors that are well known, but not very well insulated against with policy. So of course, frequent moves tends to be correlated with a lot of those poor outcomes. Group care tends to be correlated with those outcomes. I know Shelley had mentioned there was them there was running away in her history. That's a major red flag for some of those tough outcomes later. So how do we intervene when we see a child is running away? I was at a conference last week and someone had articulated an interesting concept about aging out of foster care. They're saying that many of these youth experience like a triple traumatization and that's not to like minimize it. There could be a lot more trauma than that. But they were just talking about first you have the neglect and abuse at home, right? Or and or. 
in Shelly's case, her mother also had indicated like there's some mental health issues, some violence, substance abuse issues. So you have the trauma of that. Then you're removed and you're put into a completely different environment and you effectively have lost everything. Sometimes you don't even have your toy. You don't have your usual clothes. All your friends are different. All the people you know regularly are different. Your school is different. So would, that's another trauma, which may not be avoidable if you have to be removed from care. And then finally, when you're 18, you are formally aged out of the system. So they're like, thank you, goodbye. In Ontario, we do get a bit of an allowance until you're 21 if you have aged out. But at 21, you're done. Like, that's it. No one actually follows up with you after that. Even researchers won't even research you after age 30, it seems. You know, the thing I find amazing, and I, and I know this is a hard topic, is, you know, I've worked with street youth, not to the degree, obviously, you have. But I'd say there's a very, very, very high percentage of sexual abuse. Yes. Yeah. I don't know the exact number because it didn't come out in my research, but that would be probably a fair assessment. And if not like sexual abuse, then even just violence towards them. I know that the rates of violent attacks on youth who are homeless are something like upwards of 70 or 80 percent that they've experienced something like that. I mean, and for Shelly, she would have faced so much trauma. Like, like people are like, well, she continued to be a sex worker. And my personal belief is she, I don't know how much choice she had. Like, I mean, can you imagine how much hurt and pain you've gone through mm-hmm. that you'd almost disassociate with your body? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes if that's the only path that they can see to like her friend said, food, security, safety, then it's not unreasonable to imagine how that can happen right and that's why I feel the system has a lot more work to do on the front end to make sure that the youth aren't in a position where that's the only valid or reasonable trajectory for them and I think the drug abuse I mean I I know that there's a very high percentage that do marijuana and in some ways maybe that's a positive if it's a way for them to kind of deal with their their anxiety but a lot of times it escalates to more drugs. So what yeah. what percentage of kids do you think go into the system as drug addicts versus leave the system as drug addicts? I actually, I wish someone would measure that. Like I have looked at all the academic data that was available to me and certainly Ontario, there's no studies that are systematic and large scale that look at any of those questions. But the truth is, like, even one of my studies found that youth pick things up in care. So, for example, the closeness with caregiver, their substance abuse, their in-school status, all were more predictive of their criminal justice system involvement than any, like, academic aptitude or personal characteristics. So, of course, I do agree that they must pick some things up in care, But that is an unknown area right now. To be honest with you, I genuinely believe that it can be changed in a way that's conscious of the effect the system is having as a parent on the life outcomes of the youth it's responsible for. Like, I do think that we can get there. And the first step is doing the research And I don't want to get too ambitious about like, well, the key solution is this or the key problem is this. 
well, how can I possibly say that? Because it's just another hypothesis because no one has done the large scale research on it. And for me, I genuinely believe also that the answers can come from the research. So like you don't have to go in being like, here's the solution, I think. No, you do the research and you let the research speak for itself and it will guide the solution you should take. I'll give you one little example. So early pregnancy, very common among youth who age out. One study found that by age 19, 50% had children. The rate is triple or quadruple the general population, according to some studies in the U.S. as well. So I guess someone saw that fact and was like, we must provide youth with information about family planning. And that was the policy response. But then the rates haven't changed in 40 years. So clearly they just treated a problem that didn't exist because they thought that people didn't have the information about how it worked. So they provided the information about how it works and nothing changed. So the problem then was some other researcher asked the youth, hey, like you have children and you're very young, tell me why. And the 30% of them in that study were just like, oh, I wanted the youth. So it's not that they didn't know how it worked, that they were getting pregnant. They were getting pregnant because they knew how it worked. And that's a completely different type of policy response, right? So in that case, you need to ask, why is it that somebody 19 and younger would want to be a parent? And then you start getting into other findings, right? So when you ask, when you dig deeper, some of the youth would say, we are so, so lonely. Like as soon as we age out, there's like this deep emptiness, this loneliness. And loneliness in psychology research has been correlated with worsened health outcomes, worsened mental health, worsened relationships. So it's just like, it is all connected. So then you're like, well, how come we're producing children that are pathologically lonely? And that may be related to them wanting to build a family themselves, right? Well, Shelly had three kids, and and I find that when I talk to the youth, because a lot of them do get pregnant, they say Mm -hmm. exactly what you said. Well, I'm I'm lonely. I want want something to love me, and I'm going to love it, and it's going to be this perfect family. Once I have them, I'll feel whole, and all the darkness will go away. And that's a very consistent conversation. Right. And so if a child has been put into a system where attachment isn't necessarily encouraged or guaranteed or even some cases discouraged, right? And then they age out on their own, they are aging out with a void, right? They will feel lonely, like they haven't had love for years. I think that like the demons and the, and the everything in your head is just so much if you've had so much pain. Yeah. Well, I mean, Shelley's story at the beginning with her original family. Her original family exposed her to abuse and neglect to the point she got put into care. And then when she was in care, that came with a whole new set of challenges. And those challenges amount to a life trajectory, oftentimes that is much like Shelley's, right? Not always the same, but includes low academic achievement, homelessness, poverty, you know, increased chance of transactional sex is very common. I do not think Shelley should be judged unnecessarily. I think what should be judged is the system that allowed that type of life trajectory to occur. This is Stand Up Speak Up's Finding Shelley DeRoche, Part 5. Jane Kovarikova gave us some insight about how the foster care system set Shelley up for failure. 
Without help to put her on the right path in life, Shelley ended up in a situation where she was trafficked into sex work as a teenager. To find out if there has been any progress in this area over the years, Carla spoke with Cindy Stover, coordinator of the Halton Collaborative Against Human Trafficking. How bad do you think this this epidemic is with more and more people going exposed to human trafficking across Canada and even in North America? In Canada, I know there's definitely an issue. It's being very much recognized by the government nationally and provincially. Most regions are coming up with a response to the issue of human trafficking. In Canada itself, the majority of those trafficked persons are local underage girls and young women. So around 93%, that's a stat coming from the Canadian Women's Foundation. And over 65% of police reported cases of human trafficking in Canada occur in Ontario. So Ontario is sort of like a hub, especially around the GTA. There's a lot of trafficking of individuals in the region. And I think it's important to sort of define trafficking as different than those who are involved in independent sex work. In trafficking or exploitation, the entry into that industry, in quotations, um, is involuntary or it's forced. They don't have control over their working conditions. They don't have control over their profits. They're controlled by a third party and they don't have an option to exit. Whereas legitimate sex workers are voluntary. They do have control over their conditions. They have control over, ideally, control over the profits they're making. And there's, you know, there's not someone else that is making money, uh, a trafficker who's making money off of their work. And they can choose to leave if and when they want to. So it's important for us to sort of say that that is what our work is focused on. And are there quite a few organizations that work with perhaps more cases like Shelley, someone that continues in the sex trade past being 21 years old and does it of her own free will? Yeah, for sure. Like I I know public health definitely is involved in supporting individuals in sort of a harm reduction capacity. So supporting them through access to safer sex kits, safer drug use kits, needle exchange things like that. You know, the AIDS network is supporting anyone who identifies as having AIDS or HIV. They'll support those individuals in accessing um, safe equipment for drug use and for um, safer sex kits. The Elizabeth Fry Society of Peel Halton uh, has a really unique program in our region that focuses on educating for empowerment against exploitation. And so that's a session they run for both young girls and boys who are at risk of perhaps being recruited into being trafficked. And then the YMCA also has youth and transition workers because it's been identified that it's a bit of a, a, a wide statistic, but between about 60 to 80% of individuals who have been trafficked or approached for recruitment have involvement with family services, so children's aid, have either been wards or have been in group home systems like that or in the foster system. And so the YMCA's Youth and Transition Worker Program exists to help youth who are transitioning out of care into independence. And that's definitely a time when a lot of people fall through the cracks. And so the the individuals have access to all the services that they need and have a support person who's um, helping them along the way so that they don't ideally do not become sort of prey to traffickers who are looking for vulnerable individuals to recruit. For a long time, it wasn't recognized as as an issue. It was definitely happening, but there wasn't as much attention being paid. There wasn't as much funding coming down the line for agencies to use for this kind of work because the reality is if the funding isn't there, it's incredibly hard to provide services. 
And so now that there are sort of provincial action plans and provincial funds, or sorry, national action plans that are supposed to be put together soon and provincial funding coming out, um, even though it is limited funding, it, it's very positive that it's moving in the right direction and that, that more funding hopefully will become available for this type of programming. So yeah, there's definitely a sense among service providers and those who have exited situations of exploitation that the situation is much better now than it was before in terms of accessing the necessary services to be able to exit well and to exit in a way that will provide sustainability for the person. Cindy is with the Halton Collaborative Against Human Trafficking. If you're not familiar with the geography of Ontario, Halton is a regional municipality in the southwest part of the Greater Toronto Area, less than a two-hour drive from London, Ontario. You may be wondering why, for the case of a woman who disappeared from London, we wouldn't speak to any organizations based in London and helping women in London. Well, there are a couple of groups to note. The first is London's Street-Level Women at Risk program, which focuses on addressing the housing, exit strategies, health and well-being of women who are involved in street-level sex work. We were thrilled to discover such a group exists, but surprised that after making repeated attempts to contact the managing director listed on the City of London website, nobody would get back to us. The second is My Sister's Place. My Sister's Place is a non-profit organization providing services for women and their children living with the consequences of violence and abuse. Shelley was well known at their shelter, which welcomes over 100 women each day. We attempted to speak to somebody there about an interview, but once again, couldn't get any response. We're not sure why the street-level women at risk program wouldn't talk to us, but we have an idea about My Sister's Place. Sadly, My Sister's Place is going through a rough time. A sudden sewer problem is hindering the services they can provide, and staff, volunteers, and users of the shelter have been using washrooms at the London police station across the street. The repairs could cost up to $30,000. At the time of recording, their GoFundMe page had raised $18,000, 10000 of which came from the London Police Association. Our sponsor, Wearable Therapy by Toki, kindly added in a $150 donation on behalf of all of us here at Stand Up Speak Up and its listeners, such as you. If you'd like to make an additional donation of your own, we'll include the GoFundMe link in the show notes at standupspeakup.podbean.com. We also found an Ontario-based nonprofit called The Missed Lives Project. Their website says they work to empower the families and loved ones of missing persons to attain necessary community services, help with search campaigns, research statistics, and more. They even have a private investigator listed as a member. We couldn't get in touch with any of them either, and their social media showed no activity for over a month when we checked. However, it did give us an idea. Maybe we could find a private investigator of our own. Research, tips, and interviews have given Carla an interesting list of possible suspects who could be responsible for Shelley's disappearance, or at least know something about it. Knowing it was time to seek professional help, we found Chris Williams. Chris has been a licensed private investigator since 1996 and is the owner of Canadian Private Investigation Services. When we told him about Shelley's story, he graciously agreed to volunteer his services. I mean, I think what's the amazing thing about um, about you, Chris, is that a lot of investigators could have said no or said not interested or who cares about that person. I mean, perhaps if Shelley was a child, it would be of more interest. But I don't think a lot of investigators would volunteer their time 
to help what a lot of people in society would call almost somebody that created their own their own bad luck. How do you feel about that? Someone has to be an advocate for these people, and I'm glad you are. And I wish the police were more involved in these things. There are some very dedicated investigators, but again and again and again, these services, uh, and it's been proven time and time again in BC and in Winnipeg with, with the missing Aboriginal women, that the police service have, have maybe not fulfilled their mandate to look after all their citizens, you know, even the ones we may not want to talk to. I mean, the type of lifestyle that she was living, I'm not being disparaging, in terms of the sex trade was at the absolute bottom of the, the hierarchy. At, at that point, no one would probably even rent her a room. This was a woman who the stopwatch of life was quickly running out. I'm not going to judge somebody who has fallen the cycle of addiction and prostitution because I've seen close personal friends fall in that same cycle. And these were the people who you'd be having a glass of wine with at uh, your house over for a barbecue, and they fell into the cycle. And these were people who had a great start in life, a great education, and they fell into the cycle. I think that's a good point. I mean, who are we to judge? Well, we're not. And, and I, I don't make judgments about these sorts of people. They're, they're people. They're human beings. So if I can see somebody who's a professional, educated, dedicated family person fall into that cycle of addiction and abuse and self-harm, with all of the head starts and privileges that they had in life, how can you fault somebody who was in a, an abusive relationship or abusive relationship or sex who has suffered childhood trauma or abuse? Yeah, I think I'd be uh, drowning my sorrows with whatever's available too. I agree 100%. I say that all of the time. If I had half of what Shelley experienced... I don't think I could have stayed sober. I don't know how I would have put all those demons to rest. How would I have gotten over that? I mean, she just had so much early trauma and continuous trauma that it's in some ways amazing that she was able to kind of keep herself together until 41. I think that's why it's so sad that she went missing. I mean, Shelley spent time in the drug culture and within the crack houses, and those are really scary places. So how comfortable are you, you know, in the next stage of the investigation to be perhaps in surveillance or having to talk to people that have a criminal past and, and perhaps are pretty scary to interact with? I, I uh, you know, and it might be cliche, work the streets. I, I, I was a news cameraman in Toronto, which is the third or fourth largest metropolitan area in uh, North America. When you're covering crime, and breaking news, that's where the stories are. Comfortable. I don't think you can ever really be comfortable in such a, uh, an unforgiving place. Um, but I think you have to be genuine. And I, I do understand how a lot of these people got there. I'm comfortable talking to these people. And many of them are mentally ill. And unfortunately, there's, there's a perception that you know, people with mental illness are violent. And that's not always the case. You know, most mentally ill people, I say there's parts missing at the factory, most are pretty decent people. And, and no, most aren't violent. 
Uh, I think respect is given and it's received in kind and do unto other. I think that's kind of my rule. Uh, you don't talk down to people. You don't be judgmental. Just treat them like people. But what about, you know, we, we're, we're talking about some pretty scary individuals. I mean, I mean, ones that I don't feel comfortable approaching, the family doesn't feel comfortable approaching. And whatever happened to Shelley, it scared a lot of people in that community, whether you call it um, the drug community, the underground community, scared enough that it's even hard to get people to talk on the podcast because they are so scared. I mean, literally, people are telling me they can't leave their house. People are telling me that they're completely freaked out and experiencing horrible anxiety and stress and depression and that they're fearful for their own lives. Well, and, I, and please forgive me, somebody like Shelly and, and the people, and, and there's, there's other Shelleys. I mean, I guarantee you when we go out there, we're going to see ghosts of her and people that look just like her. There are so many women that are caught up in this lifestyle. And the, the problem with these things is when these people are in this cycle, the regular societal rules don't apply. They just can't lock their door, turn on their alarm, and uh, call the police because they, they're, cast out of the, they're cast out of the community. They, they don't have the same support system that you or I would. We wouldn't put up with that. I mean, if you had a threat of that nature, you would hire private security. You know, I have a business. I can have three or four people here outside my house in perpetuity if I was under a threat of that nature. Like, what can I say? When these people say that to me, I feel completely, like, useless. I, I don't even know how to offer them support or some type of... I don't know. It makes me feel horrible when they tell me that they are so scared and that even me contacting them has put them in risk. And can I please not contact them? And, and I mean, such a fear. And when I look at some of the characters that have suspicious activity to them, they, they scare me. I mean, that's why I'm coming to, to you, an expert in this area. I mean, what could I say, do you think? What can you offer these people? I don't know. And the thing that I always wonder is there's a lot of people making a very good salary in social work and advocacy and outreach and have great business cards and phenomenal degrees, but the need doesn't seem to be fulfilled. It seems to be a great career path, you know, for an $80,000 a year for, a, you know, in social work, but where does the rubber meet the road here? Where are the services for these people? And there are generally ones that don't want anything to do with it for a variety of reasons. But I can't believe that they all don't want any help. I, 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 I reject that completely. A lot of these people want help. If these people wanted to get off drugs and get out of the addictive cycle tomorrow, and there are people that do, there's no spaces for them. Really, we're looking to have people feeling protected by people that make a salary working nine to five. I mean, at the end of the day, it's not like having someone that has your back, a gang leader or, or a drug dealer might have for that person. I mean, it's just somebody that can't take it home with them because then they can't function in their lives because they're so burned out. So the system is kind of setting it up for failure because if I was in their shoes and I saw something that perhaps, you know, if I saw something that what happened to Shelly, 
I would be scared to tell anyone in case they come after me. And I don't know if a police would protect me because at the end of the day, is he really going to put his life on the line? Is he really going to, are they or he or she as a social worker? Like, like who would really step up and say, I will protect you at all costs? The police, I think, by and large, they do a very good job. But I think they are um, a lot better in looking after the people from the same walks of life that they come from. It's just humanity. We feel more of an affinity for, you know, the people that look like us and act like us. I mean, if you probably look at your own social circle, it's probably pretty homogenous. It's quite simple. I'm just speculating here, but I know my circle, for me, my circle friend is very similar ethnic background, very similar socioeconomic background. That's just, you know, our tribalism. So I think, you know, if, I mean, everybody can relate to a, a young child. And that's why when, when the coverage of a, a missing child or an endangered child, or even a, a puppy for crying out loud, it becomes a huge deal. But because we can't relate to these people, they're, the, they're invisible people, they're forgotten. And the, the difficulty with, with investigating those crimes is most of us have a routine. You know, if you or I didn't show up for work or you and I didn't show up for a function, well, where are they? The alarm bells would go off within 45 minutes to an hour. People were making phone calls for us. Nobody was going to make phone calls for her. And the difficulty the police have is where are they going to develop the leads? There's nobody to talk to. There's nobody that's willing to talk to them. They have less than zero to start with. They have to collect a case of proof and all that. It can't just be hearsay or somebody's word against somebody else's word. And I guess if someone has history of being a junkie or a prostitute, would their word be less? I mean, does that matter? I think if you ask the officers, no. But I think their investigation becomes a little more perfunctory. You know, they're going to check the boxes. They're going to do what needs to be done. Um, they're notoriously difficult. I mean, let's be honest. If you wanted to kill somebody, if that was your drive and you wanted to kill somebody and not be caught, somebody like her would be the proverbial low-hanging fruit. I mean, she's already picked an area where it's dark, it's isolated, there's not a lot of traffic, there's not a lot of people that live there. And the people that live there are going to look the other way every single time. So she's already scoped out the perfect place for her life to be taken or to be taken away and to have her life taken from her. Really, in those cases, these women have done all the legwork for a potential killer. Next, Chris talks more about his plans to follow up on some of our leads and investigate persons of interest. Plus, he'll tell us what it feels like to go into these risky situations. This is Stand Up Speak Up's Finding Shelley DeRocher, Part 5. You might think private investigators exist only in movies, but the fact is, private investigators provide services to people in the real world every single day. Canadian Private Investigation Services offers surveillance investigators for nearly every situation, including family law, workers' compensation fraud, child support investigations, stalking and harassment, 
and uncovering theft, drug, or alcohol use in the workplace. They also offer GPS tracking services for a wide range of situations, such as monitoring company vehicles or finding out where a family member is going in your car. Canadian Private Investigation Services has an experienced, insured, government-licensed team that you can trust for all personal and business matters. To learn more about CPIS and how they can help you, visit cpis.ca. That's cpis.ca. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. We now return to Stand Up Speak Up's Finding Shelley DeRoche, Part 5. Carl is speaking with Chris Williams of Canadian Private Investigation Services. He's a private investigator who has agreed to volunteer his services and look into some of the leads around Shelley's disappearance. What are you most nervous about when you think of having to go in and talk to some of these characters and try to get some information on Shelley's disappearance? Is there something that makes you think, oh, you know, that's going to be trickier. I'm going to have to do things differently or like what would be your approach when you have to kind of go into perhaps challenging, risky situations? Trust my instincts. I think one of the things that we we get right out of us is our sixth sense. Trust your instinct. There's a book called The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBacher. This is a, a gift of trust your instinct. It should be something that should be nurtured and listened to every single time. People will put themselves in situations that are unsafe simply because they don't want to offend and they don't want to appear impolite. So my advice, you know, when I was working with reporters and that, especially, you know, female reporters, they're in the public sphere. They would, you know, often have very strange people approach them. And they would put themselves into positions that were unsafe or get a little too close because they didn't want to appear standoffish. If it feels uncomfortable, don't push your luck. I think if people want to talk to us 
and we can make those connections and talk to them and not down to them. We'll see what happens, but we're not going to put ourselves in a dangerous situation. And at all times, each and every time, I will trust my instincts. And they've done pretty well so far. Do you arm yourself? I mean, what do you take in for protection if something does get... The laws in Canada are, um, are pretty clear. That's not really an option that's available to us here. In the States, you know, I mean, most of our content, you know, you know, vis-a-vis private investigations would be, you know, a lot of your Magnum PI and stuff like that, you know, where they're typically armed. That is an option that's available in the States. I actually, I don't work in the States, but I do um, have firearms training and I do have a concealed carry permit on forks. I spend a fair bit of time in the States, but that's not a, a, an option that's available in Canada. And I'm, I'm completely okay with that. I mean, 99.9% of the things that you can, they don't just happen spontaneously. There's a buildup and you can always leave. My defense is my my shoes. (laughs) I run. Well, that's a good one. Okay, so what do you feel you need from me in order to, you know, not, not waste your time, but be focused? Any of the case prep you have, sort of, I think we want to get an idea of who the players are. There's going to be people in that scene that will come and go, and you will know when they're there. And they're probably the people that are initiating a lot of the fear in the neighborhood. So we do our approach. We're going to see who those people are. And we're going to, you know, do our approach when those people aren't around, where people are, you know, we don't want to imperil anybody here. You know, we, we don't want to imperil anybody here. So we're going to kind of get a lay, for, lay of the land, see what's happening, get the complexion, sort of judge the temperature, see what's going on. There may be better times than others. I mean, you know, when there's, uh, you know, certain times of the month when, when the checks come in, um, you know, it might be a bad time. These people might be just absolutely on a three or four day bender. Before the checks come, these people might be, extremely dope sick or, or ill or craving whatever it is they're into might not be a bad time. So we're going to kind of get an idea of the best time to visit these folks when sort of the, you know, omnipresent bad guy is not there. That's causing the fear is not around. And, and again, it, we, we might not be able to get things on the first visit. We might have to build up a rapport. Might I'm certain we'll have to build up a rapport and that might be done within a 15-minute coffee, or it might be done with helping them with a problem, which I'm perfectly happy to do. It's about building rapport and building relationships. That concludes Part 5 of Stand Up Speak Up's Finding Shelley DeRoche. Chris will be reviewing our files and making a visit to London. We'll have an update on his investigation next time on Stand Up Speak Up. Stay tuned. In our bonus content today, you'll hear about another nonprofit organization fighting human trafficking. Rum must be cold today. I saw it on the weather report. The news just broke away. Max will be leaving for good. His words and feelings misunderstood Perhaps I played a fool I shall be looking for a new place to stay Apart from most of our friends 
far away. Max will be going back to his bad old ways, whispers and wasting himself every day. Pictures of happy times found folded in an old leather book, packed in my suitcase. Max looking down at me, smile at the corner of his mouth. Sorry, he seems to say. The days are shortening, little more every day. The winter of my first love starts today. Max will forget me just after a few days. I just know it, men are funny that way. What you've heard in Shelley's story only touches the surface of the severe problem of human trafficking. One of the many organizations trying to fight it is Truckers Against Trafficking. Since its inception, Truckers Against Trafficking has helped rescue women and children who are being trafficked, and a number of strategic partnerships were established with law enforcement. The organization trains truck drivers to recognize signs of trafficking and offers a national hotline for drivers to report suspicious activity. Reporter Chris Mulia spoke with Scott Wagner, a long-haul trucker for 25 years, who is familiar with the program. What are your thoughts about all these stories that come out about truckers being kidnappers and and so on? I think most of it is exaggerated. I mean, we're affiliated with、uh, an organization that's called Truckers Against Traffic. They're a great organization. The good part about it is how you would say that most of the truckers that we've heard that have done this are not even a commercial driver's license holder. If you look at the statistics. They're saying over ninety percent of the drivers that are doing this, that are are that are trafficking,、mm-hmm. they don't even hold a CDL, but they're doing it in a commercial vehicle because they can move them at at large quantities. They can move move seven seven to twelve to fifteen people in a trailer, and where they can't do that in a car. And that statistic is 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 in all the right thing. That they're not. They're they're trying to profile the truckers as the thing. Yes,、mm-hmm. there is truckers out here that do do it. But at the same time, if you look at ninety percent, we're talking ten percent are actually commercial drivers,、mm-hmm. and then ninety percent are not. You、mm-hmm. can't profile the the truck driver for doing it. Yes, it is happening with commercials, but it's not one hundred percent the truck driver. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich dot com.